Hello and welcome to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Team Albus Daily, and joining me to review all the action from Monza and what was Zandvoort in Formula 2 is Jesse Billington. How are you? I'm very well, quite warm. Summer seems to have sort of given a final hurrah here in the UK and made itself known in one final blast of warmthy goodness. So it's it's toast toasty, certainly. Yourself? We'll take it. Not too bad, not too bad. There's a lot to go through from the feeder series and most of it pretty good. So I think we should just get straight into it with what the hell has happened. And normally we'd just say about pole position here, but we actually have news because the Formula 2 2024 car has been revealed and the key points are essentially safer. The engine is the same in terms of torque and power, but also has been tweaked a bit so that it can run efficiently on 55% biofuel. The aero is now going to be closer to Formula 1, which is good because that's what it's meant to be preparing the drivers for. The steering weight has been decreased, but there's still no power steering available. However, when it comes to accommodating a broader driver base, the car is better suited to taller and, interestingly, crucially, shorter drivers, which means that there's a vastly improved accessibility for the car and the sport, which means that hopefully people like Tatiana Calderon, who tested the car out way back when, should be able to get into it as frequently or infrequently as teams choose, like she was last year for a couple of rounds, and potentially shouldn't struggle too much with it. And hopefully is good news for people like Jamie Chadwick or Sophia Flush if they decide to go down that route, or even just the F1 Academy drivers that have to get into there at some point. The car is also a bit longer overall, but has the same width and wheelbase, and the weight should be similar too. The only thing that looked noticeably different from afar for me, maybe for you as well, was the rear wing. Yeah. Usually we're used to sort of a scalloped rear wing, a rear wing that sort of dips in the middle on the current generation of Formula One cars. This is very much the opposite way around. It sort of fans out across the top of the car, which is... I'd like to see the aero of it and see how it works and see what it's supposed to actuate and the air that it produces and the wash that it uses. But yeah, it's it's overall, I'd say this is a step forward on the car. We've been using the same car since 2018, so it's yeah, old it's, as it's hell. It became Formula 2. It became Formula 2. So about 2017-18. So 2017-18 time, yeah. So it's, it's a very... It's, old aero car it's not particularly great but it's it has given bad, us it's not it's bad not it's given us a lot of good racing certainly either so yeah. it'd be interesting to see how that impacts what already is pretty close mm. and good racing as a race car it's a good race car the problem is that as a step up from formula 3 to formula 1 it's not particularly a brilliant tool and that's why we often see or some of the formula drivers to formula 1 even formula 2 to formula 1 i think that's yes um Yes, yeah, Formula 2, Formula 1, or that intermediary point between Formula 3 and Formula 1. Um, it's not proven to be that brilliant stepping point. We often see drivers going off and doing another series and just to sort of round off some of the rough edges that it often leaves. Um, like we've mentioned with Liam Lawson going off to Super Formula, sometimes the drivers do DTM, they'll do a Frecker, they'll go and do a Winter Series. It's not uncommon. And at the end of the day, I think this new car is going to be that bit closer, like you said, and it's going to give us that better thing. Aren't they supposed to be going towards 100% sustainable biofuel? Or have they sort yes, of given they up on that? Towards that? But I still think that, I'm not sure if that's next year, if they're doing that. If that's 2026, yeah. So I think the whole idea with the, so using biofuel already this year, I think, but um, that was meant to originally be next year, but they're increasing the amount of it for next year up to 55%, I think then with the look forward to 26 being 100%. So yeah. they're going the right way about it, at least. Yeah. And I'm very interested to see 
obviously Sophia Flush is the obvious candidate to be the person to test that out to see just how unisex the car is. And she's got more points on the board than some of the other drivers in both categories. So it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, logic wise, to try that. But alternatively, you do have other female drivers who are experienced and deserving at least of a shot in F2 that whilst they probably might not make it to Formula One, it would be interesting to see what an experienced single-seater driver could do in an F2 car that is actually built a bit more for them. Yeah, I think there's certainly some of the drivers in the top flight of um, F1 Academy would be interesting to sort of see how they're able to transition to it, see if it is genuinely a car design and a car structure that is more befitting of shorter height drivers. As much as we like to joke about the fact that F1 drivers are short, um, at the end of the day, female racing drivers are going to be shorter than male racing drivers. The racing drivers as a species are short. And I think the females are, as with everything else, going to be shorter. So it's great to see there's this accessibility and this sort of, this power across it going which is is nice to see um there was another point i was going to mention that was it. i like the fact that the fact the weight width and the wheelbase and the weight of the cars are pretty much staying the same which is one of the things that makes formula 2 exciting is the fact that because it's that slightly smaller car it can get a bit racier on try to tighter tracks um with the length increasing that's not too much of a damage things is oh we can't overtake on this track i'm afraid terribly sorry but you're wasting all your time here we're just gonna have a drs train it's like no we're formula two bitches we can do this yeah it's like formula two in monaco or in hungary is always an absolute riot because the cars are smaller and in formula two you get sent around the outside of like anthony nogues and tobacco and all sorts whereas in f1 you get a DRS pass down Try the that. It's straight. just not going to go well for you. Yeah. Give it a shot. Go on. But yeah, ain't nothing happening there. Um, speaking of jumps from one series to the other, though, there was an announcement of a driver that is skipping Formula 3 entirely. I don't know if you saw this one. Yes, but remind me because I feel like you've got the information in front of you. I don't. I sort of was hoping you would remember it. Are you thinking of Joshua Mason? No, who's just sort of appeared okay. in Formula Two? Um, yes. There was Although someone else. He did else. amazingly side note as you have a look through your stuff. He had he did beat Nissani over the weekend, so that's just amusing. Yeah, he's not had the best time of things. Uh, let me just I'll just look at the twenty twenty four F two and see what comes up. Hopefully next year. Okay. Yes, yeah, already jumping in for next year. I believe he's going to be racing with Prema. Um, I think it was Kimi Antonelli. That wouldn't be surprising if it was him, then. Just give it a final check, but I believe it is Kimi Antonelli. I didn't see an official word on that, but... Kimi Antonelli, if I spell it correctly, Kimi Antonelli. Mercedes junior driver, isn't he? Mercedes junior driver, he has links to Alpine as well, I believe. I think, no, it's because Frecker's Alpine-powered at the moment, isn't it? Um, But yes, he's moving up to Prema, and uh, yeah. There you are. Wolf, uh, Toto Wolf, Mercedes will wait until f- after Frecker. Oh, just show me the article. Until after Frecker to decide to Antonelli F2 move. That was published 3rd of September, but it has la- very sort of strongly been speculated or announced as much uh, one day ago. It's reportedly set to. Official announcement, yeah. yeah. Mercedes yeah. reportedly set to fast track the rise of their prodigious talent, Andrea Kimi Antonelli, as he prepares to make his debut in the four- FIA Formula 2 Championship in 2024. Tender age of 18, this Italian sensation is poised to leapfrog Formula 3 and compete at the pin- pinnacle of Formula 1's preparatory classes, all while bearing the prestigious Mercedes emblem. 
So we'll wait and see what happens there. It could be good, but also I feel like we could be going down a table chair route again. And if he doesn't win immediately, that's mm, going to be a tough two or three years then. And also, even if he spends three years there, we still don't necessarily have anywhere to put him that in in Formula One. So it's I'll be intrigued to see how he gets on, but. I think this is a problem that not only Mercedes have, but many of the other teams have with their driver academies, is that they're all trying to find the next Max, and you can't find that too quickly, and you can't force that process as much as you might like to. So whilst I'm not saying he won't be good necessarily in F2, it is very much throwing someone in the deep end a bit harshly and really hoping you can swim. Yeah, it's it's a big ask and big demand and I think that Antony will do well he's proven to be a very good racer so far and uh, yeah it's whether he's able to yeah if he's able to very quickly grapple um, that series will be the real question Um, the only last thing I will say on that front is the fact that we obviously doubted a lot about Kushmini coming into this year and he has soared much higher than we ever dared believe he would. So there is a precedent for it, but that yeah. was also from a driver who at least had experience in Formula 3. Not by successful experience in terms of points, podiums, wins, etc., but experience nonetheless. So yeah. it's not out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, and I'd say there's still very much a ceiling to Cushmine's performance as well. Was it Crawford that he took out this weekend at Imola? No, it we'll get rather. To that later. Anyway, we'll get to that later. In the meantime, we'll have a quick dive back to Formula 2 at Zandvoort because I never actually got a chance to do anything about it. Uh, Jack Crawford took pole position. The sprint race, it was Hajar P1, Martins P2, Behrman P3. The race was red flagged after a three-way collision on the opening lap. Resumed under safety car, torrential rain, then saw the entire thing red flagged and never um, sort of picked up again. Point, no points were awarded as only two racing laps were completed without safety car intervention. So pretty fruitless there. Um, it but... was kind of the Formula 2 equivalent of you have the rank of master. You, you can be on this council, but we don't give you the rank of master in terms of Hadjai. You've got a race win, but we're not going to give you any points for it. We're not going to give you any points for it. Did, did he get a trophy for it and like the, the full podium for it? I think it? so. I didn't quite catch everything and what weekend, but mm. uh, I think he got everything except the points. If you, oh, oh, that must be such a weird scenario. Um, but however, the feature race did run its full length and the drivers were awarded full points. Um, the drivers that were on the rostrum, though, were not the ones you'd expect with Clement Novelak taking P1, Zane Maloney P2 and Crawford P3. Um, Porsche, Vesti, Bem and Duan all DNF second year in a row at Zandvoort for Duan to have a pretty rough time with things. He was collected in a big crash in the feature race last year, I believe. Um, and the conditions were a bit challenging, so while entertaining, it was not necessarily an accurate representation of the talent of the grid. Sometimes stuff just happens, like both your rear wheels fall off in Fred Vesti's case. Um, nonetheless, when the circuit went green, Maloney and Crawford enjoyed a good battle and neither had the tyres post-tussle ready to go and challenge Novelak, who would go on to take his first win in uh, any series since GB3, which is quite the waiting time. Quite the waiting time, and he's gone back to normal for months or so. It seems very much flash in the pan, freaky kind of Zandvoort event there. And I think just quickly undoing, I'm pretty sure he didn't even makes the race start last year. I think I think he span out on the banking going into the last corner. He did that this um, year. Oh, okay. So 
last year he was last year he was wiped out in a race safety car restart by like uh, the back of the field he was probably on the last corner as well though I think, literally well. coming out of the last corner yeah this time yeah. he got up onto the banking I knew the memory the was similar came round. it was yeah very sort of deja vu for um, doing there so not great regardless we'll shuffle on to Formula 2 in Monza where it was a slightly different story and a lot more conventional with um, qualifying as conventional as F2 can get yeah, uh, qualifying. We saw Novelak head out for a solitary lap on his own, then come back into the pits. Everyone sat there doing the sweet naffle for a good while in the usual Monza chaos. Uh, then Crawford caught fire, which was quite odd. Uh, Porsche eventually gets in a lap that bags his first pole since the opening round of the season. Vesti was crucially down in eighth place, so a long way for his championship rival behind him. Uh, weirdly, Teo's third pole in his Formula 2 career as well. You sort of expect there to have been a few more by this point, but no. Uh, and Roman Stanek came out of nowhere to perform quite nicely. So Porsche pole and then a bit of a jumbled order behind him, but of crucially one extra point added to Porsche's tally and just what he needs to sort of try and keep the game afoot with Vesti this season. Yeah, Porsche is that weird driver where he's just got good racecraft and is is a better version of Arthur Leclerc in terms of bad qualifying, good racing, whereas Arthur Leclerc just qualifies so badly that he just spends most of the race trying to get back up to a position where he can just about get a point and then it's too late by the time he actually gets there to do much more than that. Um, and Stanek, yeah, that was about his highlight of the weekend, really, because it did kind of... I mean, he did all right in the sprint race, considering, but he did have a bit of a memorable weekend, but not for any of the reasons that he's going to want it to be remembered for, but we will get to that. The sprint race did see Vesti in P1, Martins in P2, and Richard Vashore in P3 back up there. That was nice. It was a bit of an epic sprint race with action throughout. And the uh, chair P4, again, that consistency being key there. Miney P5, Behrman again with the consistency P6. Leclerc actually doing all right there, but again, that's a tale of two halves of the weekend in P7. Stanek in P8, but it was a bit of a bad race for Dewan, just missing out on the points in P9, and Iwasa DNF'd, which at that point I had to ask the question, is that at least Iwasa out of title contention and potentially Dewan? Iwasa may be back into it after the feature race, but Dewan, it's... He's been on an impressive streak, but that's going to be difficult now, and it's going to need a lot of chips to fall his way, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of drivers that need a lot of chips to fall their way. I think they're sort of looking for basically a double win in Abu Dhabi to sort of pull this one back. And, and for um, those other people around him. To not score to any points. Really sort of thing. Yeah, mathematically, they're still in the title. But I think, like you said, with it was certainly with Duan and possibly with Iwasa, some of those lower ones in that sort of top six, I think, are... Don't stand the best chance really for getting the title. I think it is coming down to the top three and possibly even top two at that, really. Talking of things that didn't go to plan, there was drama throughout the field, which started with Boshong, who amusingly on the formation lap, they obviously have the interviews with the three drivers who are on starting on like third, second, and first. And he was saying, Yeah, ideally pull out a bit of a lead, can have a bit of a gap then and can just sit comfortably for the race and just go on and do this kind of thing because he was on reverse pole. And uh, he bunged reverse pole immediately. Showing, didn't even make it into turn one, I don't think, and was just pretty much screwed from there. And uh, that was about him done for most of the race there. Cordial got spun around and it wasn't actually his fault. 
which uh, was amusing because Alex Brundle and Alex Jakes apologised because they just assumed that he'd done something to himself. Um, both high techs were given time penalties, and Deruvla and Hagger both took very costly trips to the gravel. Nisani was Nisani, and Fittipaldi fell down the order too in what is a bit of a yo-yo season for him, unfortunately. Um, but the positive to take from it was that in amongst all that drama, there was some particularly great racecraft from Martin in particular, some very nice overtakes. And Porsche also gets a mention for some very smooth moves as well. Kind of amusing enough showing Lewis and Piastri how to race and overtake successfully into that specific corner and how to get it done properly um, rather than choosing the alternate route, shall we say. Yeah, clattering and so on and then sort of bouncing over the curbs. It was... Yeah, it was a sort of very typical F2 sprint race in that regard. In fact, there was a lot of action, a lot of interesting moves here and there, and a lot of drivers fighting and tussling around. And yeah, Martins is very much proving why he sort of came out on top in F3 last season and is... He's doing more of a job of proving himself than Hauger is, which is interesting because Hauger had a much more dominant Formula 3 season. Martins had to fight tooth and nail for his championship and yet he's been the one that's been more impressive in his rookie year, and Helga has had good moments, but he's not developed as much in his second season as we would have thought, and maybe as one of these three-season drivers, he certainly will be hoping so, because otherwise his future is very much in doubt in terms of Formula 1, and he's going to have to start looking elsewhere, if not being forced to look elsewhere or told to go elsewhere. Um so it's interesting from Martins, good racecraft, keeping his head down. And again, he's made a few mistakes this year, but again, he is a rookie. Mm. I'd argue with strong confidence, really, that um, Martins is having a, a better rookie F2 season than um, Halger has had when he was a rookie in F2. I'd say that certainly Martins has made a lot more of it in this instance. And perhaps that's because there's less pressure on him than there was of Hauger because of how dominant Hauger was. But at the same time, you need to be able to deal with the pressure. And that's only going to get worse the higher up you get. So it's just interesting to see how two very different F3 champions have been able to cope with Formula 2. And then you get other drivers that obviously are not necessarily in the same league as you. But if you take Kushmini, for example, very different F3 experience. But then weirdly, much better F2 experience if you try and compare it a little bit. So it's it's all very interesting to see how crucial a step F3 is to F2 and why it's not as easy as you might think to just go from F3 and be absolutely brilliant in Formula 2. Mm. We'll move on to the feature race, though, where the podium is Behrman P1, Iwasa P2, out of nowhere, really, for Ayumi Iwasa there, and then Porsche P3, very much a race that... Porsche could sort of be a bit more measured in actually, given the things he didn't that take any risks. Yeah, given the things that conspired through the race, he could have would have been happy with taking a full haul of points and really opening the gap to Bestie. But at the end of the day, he knew that it wasn't worth that risk, and coming home with a P3 was far more valuable to him than being in the kitty litter and not scoring anything at all. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was another impressive display by Bowen as well. I mean, it's his fourth win of the year, rookie as well. So that's just on a whole other level. Iwasa moved up 13 places thanks to his alternate strategy to recover after what we've already said was a terrible sprint race. And Porcher, like you say, that he 
he didn't need to push his luck and he'd already got lucky in a lot of ways because of Stanek squeezing Vestia onto the grass very early in the race and ultimately out of the race as he spun and then crashed, making it very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult for Vestia to win the in Abu Dhabi now. So Porcher just very much had to keep his head down and try and fight that urge to race as much as he may have wanted to because that win could have been his, but I think that's the crucial thing for any driver that wants to be a champion. You need to know which battles to fight and when to just be like, is this worth the risk or can I still do it? And if I am going to make the risk, I've got to be kind of on a whole other level to what I was on previously because I need to not just beat those two drivers, then I have to absolutely annihilate them. And I don't think he's quite there yet, which is perfectly fine because that's just a different kind of champion. And once you're a champion, does it really matter? Yeah, it's very much that sort of the idea of um, knowing when to hold him, knowing when to fold him and knowing when to walk away, I think was very much Porcher's sort of approach to the rest of that feature race. And it, it paid dividends, I think, in the long run for him. It wouldn't have looked quite so spectacular, but at the end of the day, what will look spectacular is winning the championship with a good lead, I think. So, yeah, a, a good result there. Um, meanwhile, less good results for the likes of Martins, Maloney, Miney and Leclerc and Novelak, for that matter, as they all retired. Stuck DRS flap, crash, contact with Crawford, spinning and being Novelak really sort of took them all out. Um, I think the D- Stuck DRS flap was very interesting because all of a sudden it gave Martins something interesting to try and contend with. He all of a sudden had a car that wasn't really that much quicker in the straight line than the rest of the field around him because everyone was in a DRS train. But through the turns, he really had to fight the car to try and keep it going. He did it for a few laps, but was eventually meatball flagged um, and then brought into the pits and retired because they simply weren't able to even force the flat back down. It'd get it down hydraulically actuated up and stuck up. Um, but even through the turns, he was able to really hold off. Wasn't it Miney that was behind him, I think? Um, Possible. There was a lot of changing going around in, in that race, so it was hard to keep track of things I, at the time, to be honest. I do think it was Miney that was behind him when it, it sort of actuated and got stuck. And Miney was struggling to get past through the turns, which I think is... I don't want to take away from Miney's performance, but I think it really adds to Martin's performance that all of a sudden you've got a car that's lost a huge amount of downforce through those high-speed turns. He's able to basically power slide it the entire way through. It was sort of full rally stage, classic Formula One, sort of giving it a bit of soaring action at the wheel to just try and keep the car sort of going vaguely towards the apex you're after. So if anything, it's, it's proven his driving skill, but certainly didn't earn him the points that he needed this year in the championship. Crawford and Stanek also came together as kind of mentioned there and it took Crawford out of the race but he was classified as P16 because of how late in the race it was and the safety car then took the race to the end so a little bit of a disappointing end to proceeding considering how action-packed it had been up to that point but also pretty fitting um, Formula 2 of edging I mean, I'm not going to even bother replying to that one. We're just going to move straight onto the drivers that stood out. There. I don't have anything else for that now. I'm going to go for Behrman straight away and just keep pressing on this this train for consistency, if nothing else. And Martins also has to be a standout for me just because of what we've just talked about, but also his racecraft in this sprint race. Just simply lovely, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, for me, my my driver comes very much from the feature. I don't think his sprint was truly representative of the driving skill we've seen of him across this season and last. But in the feature, 
Omer Wasser came from nowhere and really put on a mature drive to turn around what could have been a tricky weekend. It's not necessarily saved his championship hopes, but it's revitalised... put him in touching distance of P2. Yes, yeah. And I think that certainly, if, as we mentioned in the Formula One podcast, when you're Red Bull and Alpha Tauri looking at those seats and thinking, who do we keep, who do we kick out? If all of a sudden you've got a Red Bull driver that's coming in P2 by the end of the season, it's not a bad world to be to be in. Not at all. And does lead nicely into the Driver and Constructor Championship top three for Formula Two. So Porchette is getting a bit of a lead now. 190 points to his name. Vesti back in second on 166 points. It's doable, but it's going to be tough. Iwasa getting ever closer to Vesti on 152 points in third. And like you say, if he can get in second there, that's three places ahead of where Logan Sargent was and one place ahead of where Joe Guan Yu was when they finished their respective F2 careers. So it's a very strong content, very strong resume, shall we say, to try and get in that Alpha Tower seat. F2 constructors-wise, we've got ART out in front with 321 points, Pramer in second with 296 points, and Rodin Carlin in third with 212, who were just kind of, we're also here. Yeah, they're sort of clinging on for dear life in that sort of third place in the F2 constructors. Uh, which neatly wraps up our F2 chatter, and I think we'll roll it straight on into our F3 chatter. But it's sort of we've got a nice little pausing point there to sort of look back on the F2 to this point in time. And equally, we've got a big gap of something like 82 days or something until F2 goes green again in Abu Dhabi. Which is good for Zane Maloney because he needs that time to recover after his uh, crash in Monza. He did big crash in Monza. Yes, yeah, he was um, not hobbling out of the car, made his way back to the pits. I think it's sort of looking like a bit of a twist and a sprain, it's, but nothing more than that. But uh, So we wish him well with his rep- recovery with that one. But um, out of the current F2 crop, who do you want to see as an FP1 drive? And crucially, who do you reckon is going to come out on top at the end of Abu Dhabi? Well, I predicted Jack Doohan at the start of the year, so that is tricky at this point, but I'd still like to see that happen. I don't know how it happens, but I'd like to see it. Um, Is he still? I still think it? it would be nice for Vesti to be able to to do it, just because. I don't. I still think whoever wins this championship is not going to be in Formula One next year, and for that kind of reason, it's got to be Vesti because then Porsche would just replace Joe and Alfa Romeo anyway. Um, because that seems to be the done thing of let's not actually put a champion in Formula 1 until at least two years after they've won the F2 title. Let's put someone else in. Or you get to be Mick Schumacher and you get stuck in a Dove hat. Um, So I wouldn't mind seeing any of the top five, really, or top six in an FP1 session. Jack Doohan deserves a spot. In, in, a, in a free practice session, maybe Cota or Mexico, somewhere like that. Um, or Chair Vesti all seem like obvious choices as well. Iwasa, I don't know where they stick him. I think he's the most unlikely to get an FE1 session just because they've all kind of sorted themselves already because of the shenanigans going on with Bonafa, don't we? And I don't think there's anyone else who is likely to. So... And I don't think there's necessarily anyone else who really deserves it. 
Yeah, that's understood. That makes sense. Um, so Dewan cannot win the championship on 138 points with only 38 available. He cannot close the gap to Teo Porcher. He can, however, come second, assuming obviously no one in the between him and yeah. second yeah. place scores points. Um, so that leaves essentially um the race for first is between Ayumi Wasa, Frederick Resti, and Teo Porcher. Yeah. I think Which of those three are you going for then? I think oh, I'm gonna call it and say it's gonna be Vesti. Vesti Vesti. It it could happen. It could happen. And I'd I think it would be very typical of Porcher. It'd be a nice story, I luck. think, as a neutral fan. Yes. You don't want to then see, oh well. Porcher got there easily enough in the end because of some bad luck for 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 Vesti, and he just had to go through the motions then. And it'll be very Abu Dhabi of things. And it's F two. We don't want it to be very Abu Dhabi of things. We want it to be Formula two. Hmm. I mean, at thirty, so that takes him into one hundred ninety-eight plus three eighty-eight. I can. I don't think um, Iwasa can win actually. One hundred fifty-two plus thirty-eight takes him to 190 so yeah Iwasa can't win either yeah, Porsche would win on countback uh, no if he didn't score no. anything Porsche would win by one point he's, he's only on 190 points so you just 191 was... did you include a fastest lap or a pole position point in yours I was looking at what the F2 website said so then maybe they just oh. updated it yeah they probably would have now but I've, a few hours later after I put the thing up but I was going to say, now, now that you've put it on the podcast and said so, um, oh no, their website says 190 points, whereas the Wikipedia says 191. Well, I'm going to trust Formula 2. Yeah, I'm going to trust Formula 2 there, in which case, Iwasa on 150. I mean, Iwasa still loses, but it would be on countback. Yes, it, which is, so. if anything, a harsher way of it falling. Um, but yeah, uh, Dewan is not close enough. So Vesti is in reality the only person that could win outright against Porcher. And I think it is going to be Vesti. Um, drivers, I'd like to see in an FP1 drive. I'd like to see Porcher get the FP1 drive. I think that would be a, a, a really good final part to his Jim season. I prefer he didn't. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that's down to Joe to have done better. Um, I think I'd like to see Awasa in one of the Red Bull cars or one of the Alpha Tauri cars by that measure uh, I think Vesti would be an interesting one as well I know we've already got him lined up against um, Lou against George uh, or replacing George rather so he'll yeah. be against Lewis um, so it'd be interesting to see there I think Martin's in an F1 car would be quite interesting yeah no I can I, see that I think he's I in would... six so I can just about kind of see him or Berman so I wouldn't mind seeing Berman in a house and Martin's in an Alpine. There we go. I wouldn't want to be whichever Alpine driver sits opposite. I mean, you don't want to be either of them anyway, because Dewan's already looking at both seats with a bit of hunger in his eyes. Never mind Martin. So has Dewan done an FP1 drive yet? I think he has. I think he did one earlier in the season, yeah. I or one, where, but I'm pretty sure. Might have done one last year. Might have done that as well, in which case it's even more trouble for Gasly and Ocon. Yeah. But if you're Gasly or Ocon, you've all of a sudden got Victor Martens next to you and a comfortable looking Victor Martens problems are on the horizon there so I think that that neatly wraps up our F2 chatter we'll shuffle then into Formula 3 and um, we'll dive straight on in with kick things off with qualifying 
because yeah. there was both a lot of excitement and really not much of anything. Yeah, it was one of those sort of Monza qualifying sessions where nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, everything happens. Oh my God, we've got a champion. Um, so pole position went to Oliver Gerfer, who is not in title contention. Um, however, the fact of the matter is that crucially for Gabriele Bortoletto, it wasn't Paul Aaron on pole because, of course, Formula 2 and Formula 3, you get a point if you qualify on pole. And Paul needed to bag pole and win both the sprint and feature races with the fastest lap to stand a chance of going level with Bortoletto on points, which on countback would give him the title. Deprived of that pole position point, Aaron could only do a best of 143 points this season. So even if Gabrielli failed to score a single point, it doesn't matter. So even by the end of qualifying, we had our champion. Mathematically, there was no denying it. Pole went to Oliver Gertha. There's a lot of action in the qualifying stint with several drivers crashing out, contact up and down the field as drivers jostled for a toe. Doesn't matter though. Bortoletto became champion in the pit lane. Second year in a row, we've seen the championship for F3 awarded in the pit lane because his main that was... made it to the future race. Yeah. Yeah. Still. Um, but yeah, this is. Um... I mean, it's, it's something we're definitely going to touch on in an F3 season review, but Bortoletto is such a curious champion because whilst we watched all of this season, or at least I have, in it, for the most part, at the very least, He's been just such a forgettable figure in a lot of ways. And it's kind of, I know he's done well, but you've kind of immediately forget about it. And yet you just assume that he was, or he just started the season about 50 points up on everyone else before the racing even started, because it just seemed to have such a massive gap so soon that you're like, sorry, who is this person? I know I should pay more attention to the really junior categories, but he does seem to have come out of nowhere a little bit for people who just look at F1, F2, F3, F1 Academy. And, I mean, it's very impressive. He's obviously got to be in F2 next year, and he proved in Monza why he's a good driver and how we managed to get this championship through consistency and not really winning an awful lot of the time. Um, but he was just always kind of there in the background doing exactly what he needed to. So kudos to him for that. And again, if in that sense, it's a very fitting way for him to win the championship in pit lane after qualifying, because it's just the kind of sneaky ninja thing he, that he would do. Yeah, I mean, we'll stick with Paul Aaron quickly and go that while he wasn't able to get his qualifying point that he needed, it all went a bit further tits up for him in the sprint race, where, of course, he retired, um, so scored no points, and then came home seventh in the feature but the problem was Zach O'Sullivan, not too far behind him, came home second, which was enough to see him leapfrog Paul Aaron by uh, seven points as well. So bagged himself second in the championship out of a bit of a nowhere all of a sudden. So it's, yeah, one of those odd seasons. And I think Bortoletto's championship very much came to him in the first two rounds where he had two feature race wins in Bahrain and Albert Park in Australia and that put him on very much the right foot when you look at the drivers that were close to him O'Sullivan had a sprint race win um, and an 11th and a 5th in feature races either side of that and then you look at Paul Aaron's where he had a 3rd place in the sprint in Australia but a 12th and a 6th in the feature races either side of that so it was Bortoletto got off to Isn't a very that interesting start. thing where Paul Aaron was the driver that everyone was looking at at the beginning of the year because of how strong he'd been up to that point in in lower categories and Bortoletto 
not bad by any stretch of the imagination, but it's always interesting to see which drivers are looked at. And especially with like Jack Dewey this year, everyone thought he was going to come into F2 and win and just be dominant. And then it's these other drivers, it's Vesti being the Porsche. You're not too surprised about Vesti being the main title contender. They're like, interesting, you're good, but we weren't expecting you to be this good. And the junior categories have a weird way of weeding out which drivers have got what it takes and not necessarily in a, a racing driver way that is the most logical in terms of just win outright everything. Do a Dennis Hauger, do a Victor Martins, where if you're not winning your race, coming on the podium every other race, that kind of thing. So very interesting, very interesting. But yeah. um, the sprint race itself was pretty action-packed from the outset, and Colapinto managed to win that one. Bortoletto, P2, again, didn't need to at that point, but why not go for a victory lap? Boyer then P3, first podium for him, better late than never. As you mentioned, Collett tagged Aaron going down to T1, which basically had a domino effect crash-wise and was pretty dramatic. Um, Taylor Barnard then came home P4, very strong weekend for him overall. Browning in P5, Fornaroli P6, not bad for his home event. Gertha in P7 and Mini in P8. And essentially the only note I've got for that is it was a very nice action-packed way to start off the weekend, really. So it was worth getting up a little bit earlier for. Yeah, jostly, energetic, and just sort of typical Formula 3 fair and very good action indeed, which lined everything up nicely for the feature race. We obviously knew who was on top in the championship, but there was still plenty to be driving for, and that clearly came through in the performance we got from O'Sullivan, who came home P2, just behind Johnny Edgar P1 and uh, Barnard in P3. So I think it was, was that a triple, uh, triple British podium, I think, in the Formula 3 there. I can't remember from correctly. Yeah, Taylor Barnard, British, Johnny Edgar, British, and of course, Zach O'Sullivan, yeah. British. Yeah, so yeah, all British podium in the final F3 race of the season, which is quite which nice. Which I to think see. I predicted an all British podium for Silverstone this year. So, you know, I was close. With the F1. I was, I was two categories down and in the wrong country, but, you know, I wasn't far away geographically. The energy was there. I'll give you that. Um, Gertha broken throttle as he pulled up on the formation lap, so he was forced to retire from the feature race. And then Colapinto, Marty, Saucy, Montoya, Ben, Drin, Frederick, Farrier, and Cohen all DNF'd. Broken suspension, contact, contact, teammate contact. Not entirely certain what went on with that be Montoya or Bedrin. I can't I think it was Bedrin. Uh, ended up in the gravel for Frederick and... And Budrick, not sure yeah. again for uh, not sure. Yeah, what not out. sure again really what happened with some of them. They just sort of vanished from the race, really had a bit of an Esteban Ocon in that regard. Um, so yeah, very mixed sort of outcomes for a variety of the drivers further down the league there. Uh, but we did end up with a last lap shootout, which was quite entertaining, as had the rest of the race been, due to the lead of the race constantly changing, but Edgar managed to keep a hold of it until the end. Get very much a Formula E racing amount of lead switches, really. Um, so to see off the Formula Three reason. Formula 3 season in style was very apt. It felt very last day of school. That was definitely something that came across in the commentary as well. I know that I think Alex Brunner mentioned it at some point or another. Yeah, he definitely did. And some of the moves that some of the drivers were making, you thought, yeah, you're just doing that because you know this is the one time you can get away with maybe being a bit more aggressive or a bit more ballsy going into particular corners than you would normally be because it's the last chance you'll have for a while to prove yourself to either the team that you're currently with to keep you for next year or other teams in F3 or if you're looking to really go for it to try and get into F2 like that driver's got a bit of spunk there let's go with that driver because they've you know what Monza it's a, it's a classic track if you can do it there you can do it anywhere 
yeah, I think it was just just a, a bit crazy, really. I think it was, it was a good way to finish off the four yeah. three season. It's kind of probably chaos, and at least we got a proper ending to it this year, and we didn't last year because of the the crash that sort of the, the race curtailed early and had to be getting Victor Martins crammed in the pit lane. But it does yeah. also mean that potentially for the last time this year, unless she gets into another category between now and December, Flush watch for one final time. Qualified P17, which on paper is not necessarily the best, but also considering where she has been qualifying, it's better and it's a nice improvement in that direction. I feel like that's, it's not just a thing for her. I think that's a thing for a lot of drivers down that end of the field. They don't often get a lot of the spotlight on them because oh, if you're qualifying P28 all the time and you go to P22, you're like, yeah, but it's still P22. It's like, yeah, but it's an improvement. And there are all these other narratives going on that just don't get a lot about. And maybe that's something we should look at in a bit more detail for the, the season review of this and give them a bit of a shout out. But again, P17, not bad anyway for this particular driver. Sprint race went from P17 to P12 on the opening lap, which definitely took advantage of the chaos there. And she has proven to be particularly good at that this year um contact with Solov though after the safety car restart ended her momentum a bit there wasn't we thought there was maybe damage if there was it wasn't significant enough to retire it was a shame though because she ended the race in p17 so on paper it's you finished where you started but that's not really a fair uh, assessment of things normally it wouldn't be a bad result and you'd be lamenting what could have been because we're getting used to her getting a bit further up the order by now in the last few rounds or so. So it was both a good and a bad race in some ways, and it's hard to know how to judge it. Yeah, um, a tricky one in that regard. You sure she finished 17th? I thought she finished 16th. Could have been 16th, but I think that might have been due to something after the race. I, I, I was looking as a coming over the finish line, but maybe there was something that I didn't quite catch up. P16, I mean, still not bad anyway. I'll take P16. Uh, let's check. Formula 3, standings. Monza. Floor. Um, why don't you give me the full Monza results? Do it that way. There we go. Da, 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 da. Sprint race results. See all results. Uh, floor, 16th. Ah, fair enough. Well, one position then. We take it. We take it. Still not bad, but even then, still don't know what to do with that. Yeah, unclear um, really where to go with that one. Feature race, she again started from P17, naturally, and I think this time she did finish in P17, but again, it didn't tell the whole story because there were some... Battles P13. Ultimately... P where, sorry? P13. She finished P13 in the feature race. Correct. What the hell happened there? Uh, I must have been looking at the sprint race things. I must have been I, getting all mixed up there. Are you sure you didn't no just keep writing down the qualifying or something? I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what happened. Because she qualified there. 18th like, in the Someone lied race. to me in the standing. So I, I, someone, when I was reading the Formula 3 uh, website, that said P17. But hey ho, well, P. Perhaps it's now been ratified. There might have been some more penalties Maybe. handed out or something. Okay, so P18 to P13. You know what? She had a good race overall. So I'm not annoyed with any of that. She did all right in the end. Happy with that. And a strong yeah. end of the season for us. So again, points-wise, I think she got six points overall for the season. Arguably, she got more, but I'm, I'm still bitter about Austria. Um, and when you compare that to the other PHM drivers in this championship and the PHM drivers in Formula 2, 
not too shabby at all. And as we've pointed out in previous podcasts, other drivers have done a lot less to be promoted to Formula 2 and to stay there for an enormously silly period of time. So I'm not saying that she will get put into F2 for next year, but if you're PHM, you've already got nothing to lose. Why not? I'd argue that given the fact that overall she's finished 23rd this year, there are other options. Uh, There are other options, but if you're keeping it in the family of PHM and if you... Oh, for whatever yeah. reason, money keeping Nasani, and you want to keep the rostrum going of impermanent teammates alongside him, at least gives Flush a go for half a season. Yeah, but I mean, it's tricky to tell how she can happen. It's tricky to tell how she's done against her teammates because they kept changing them throughout the season as well, and mm. she by and large had the sort of rubber the green over them. So I mean, she was there all season. She had Robert Roberto Faria against her all season. Uh, where did Roberto come? Um, checks overall. notes. Overall, 31st. Zero points at all. Um, Which is impressive, considering, again, 30 drivers are meant to be in Formula 3 and he came 31st. Yeah, but then against that, she had Piotr Wisnicki, Mackenzie Cresswell, and Michael Shin as well. So a pretty packed sort of amount of drivers in there. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's not too bad a performance from her. Uh, but it's worth, however, giving a quick shout out to Jamie Chadwick for finishing P6 in Portland in Indy Next, which was a good little drive, actually. It was and a bit of Indy chaos, Next though, but she is... managed to get rid of most of, she managed to dispatch most of it. And she was on for P5 for a bit. It was just, I can't remember which driver it was, a sneaky driver. I, didn't, I don't like him anymore because he got in Jamie's way. Um, but again, P6 is very decent and Portland's a nice little track. And Indy Next has proven to be a very feisty and boisterous series. So to come out of that with good positions is is worth mentioning. She's really, having so. a pretty solid rookie year there. So I'm hoping that at the very least she gets to have a second season there next year before potentially IndyCar in 25. Yeah, it's not the worst. So we'll, we'll wait and see what happens for her. So it leads us nicely into our Drivers and Constructors Championship top threes for Formula 3. Final time this year, Bortoletto, strangely enough, is in P1 with 164 points to his name. O'Sullivan managed to get P2 in the end with 119 points, and Paul Aron in uh, maybe disappointing P3 after all that with 112 points. Constructors-wise, Pramer won that one outright, 327 points. Trident in second with 306, and MP Motorsport blessed them all the way back in third with 194 points, which uh, very kind of Roden and Carl in Formula Two of them, and. Uh, you know what? For MP Motorsport, actually, not a bad shout to be in the top three. So, and they did have a strong final outing in Monza. So, I take back my slightly snide remarks there because they needed that, and hopefully they can be a bit more competitive next year because they've they've always been there, but they've never been quite there. I don't think, or at least not whilst I've been watching. Yeah, it's one of those sort of very typical Formula Three seasons where there's just been a lot of different things going on up and down the field. And I think to, for Bortoletto to come out of it on top with that big of a gap, I don't think it actually reflects how tight and jostled it's been as a season. Um, but at the end of the day, it does also accurately reflect the work he's put in. I think the same certainly goes to Premer to a certain extent, the fact that they were able to, at the end of the day, cinch that one over Trident. So, yeah. 
we've obviously got a massive wait now for the last bit of, well, semi-last bit of feeder series action, but we do have F1 Academy in Austin, which we may actually be able to watch, if I'm remembering correctly. So we might have something for that one. It's the Taiho Decider, so we may have a little short episode on that one. Um, Championship Battle there is heating up. It looks like it's going to be Marta Garcia, but... At the same time, anything can happen. There's still three more races to play with, and every driver has points on the board. So who knows? It's been quite a, a feisty little field there for, for an opening season, and hopefully that's just a pastry of things to come for next year. But Abu Dhabi is the next time we have Formula 2. We'll probably have a bit of testing and some driving news between now and then, so we'll either keep an eye on that and announce it as it comes, or we'll save it all up and maybe even do a Formula 2 preview episode. Who knows? It could be madness. Um, but in the meantime, that is all we have got time for on this week's episode. Do join us again soon for some more excellent F1 and non-F1 content. So make sure you've liked, subscribed, and got notifications turned on to not miss a darn thing. In the meantime, Jesse, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok as at Jesse on Cars. And you can also find me writing for Classic Car Weekly. And more importantly, this weekend, because it will this will come out before I'm there, uh, you can find me down at the Goodwood Revival. I'll be there with Ellie May. There is F1 content on across the weekend, plus some uh, some historic junior uh, single-seater cars there, as well as some historic feeder series action. Um, with friend of the podcast, Alex Brundle, racing in it as well. We're celebrating 75 years of Lotus, what would have been Carol Shelby, his 100th birthday and uh, I believe 50 years since oh uh, Stewart's won the championship no uh, 50 years since Jackie Stewart last won a Formula 1 world championship 1973 of course you're close um, so yeah plenty more to come from me and obviously we'll be back with a preview for the Singapore Grand Prix sometime soon well, as for me, you can find me over on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and I think Instagram. That is just about the, the summation of that all, I think. Anyway, all of it will be in the show notes, so do go and check that out if you want to find us in any of those places that we have just said about. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back. Well, we won't be back soon for more feeder series, actually, but we'll be back soon for more general motorsport goodness. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.